These are the trauma healing learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 12, How Dads Can Support Trauma Healing by Forming Yard Brigades with Jim Hebert. It's often difficult to think of ways to help a family in spinal cord injury crisis, or any crisis for that matter. Everything might seem insignificant compared to the magnitude of a life-altering injury or traumatic event or loss. In some ways, that's true. In others, it's not. Well, your well-meaning actions and thoughtfulness will make a world of difference when others are suffering. Even if you don't receive acknowledgement for them right away, trust that your acts of kindness are helping those in need. And your acts of kindness are also good for you. We are learning more and more about the importance of kindness and the reciprocal experience. Many friends of families who have experienced a devastating spinal cord injury report that they want to help their dear friends, but not sure how. And they can feel waves of guilt as time goes on that they've not contributed in some meaningful way. Well, there are so many ways to contribute over the course of time, and each way is special. One thing you might not think is important is yard work. Yes, the upkeep and maintenance of a home on the outside. It might seem that the outside of a home is less important than what's occurring inside. But as you may have learned in episode 12, Going Home, part one, that is not always the case. Home is a safe space Homes for most people are sacred spaces, places of respite, rest, and ease. Compared to the stark, sterile, and traumatic environment of an ICU, home is everything. It's a hearth and a safe haven away from the beeping of monitors and sleepless nights. Well, Jim Hebert, along with some other dads in a local lacrosse club in Baltimore, MLC, the Maryland Lacrosse Club, realized this and formed a yard brigade. Yep, they swarmed our yard on a couple Saturday mornings and they came back seasonally. It's an incredible way for hardworking and yard-working dads who are struggling to think of a way to help, to help. Create a yard brigade. The secret to this operation is that people want to help families in crisis. And it's amazing modeling for younger boys involved in the effort as well. It builds relationship and ways we all feel connected. Feeling connected and that you belong is at the core of trauma healing. 
my family and I experienced the benefit of a yard brigade, and it promoted our healing in many lasting ways. When I came back to Baltimore from the Shepherd Center, I will never forget how it felt to see my garden in all its full glory, dotted with flowers and lined with clipped ivy and carefully mowed grass. The beauty disarmed me, and it allowed me to feel again. It made me weep and crack open my armor I had felt I had to wear every day. The manicured yard was the beautiful interrupter to my heightened trauma response. It did calm my central nervous system. It was exactly what I needed. Yes, caring for each other is one of the most natural human impulses we have. And beauty is a reminder of how precious life is. Thanks in advance to all the dads who may have led or who may lead in the future a yard brigade for a family they know or perhaps a family they don't know experiencing great emotional loss. So settle in, take a deep breath, settle your body, free your soul, and enjoy this view of one of those dads. Here we go. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 12, how dads can support trauma healing by forming a yard brigade with Jim Hebert. I am blessed to introduce you to Jim Hebert. Jim is in financial sales at T. Rowe Price in Baltimore, and he is the father of three wonderful sons. And our boys have gone to school together and have played sports together, especially soccer and lacrosse. And in particular, those boys have played with my youngest sons, Dutch and Archer. Jimmy was a part of the Archer Strong team back in 2015 when our family was in the throes of the spinal cord injury crisis. So Jim, I am really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome. I'm truly honored to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. You were so instrumental behind the scenes in work at our home that provided not only comfort to me, but a sense of security for our family. I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. I want to talk with you about that. And we have this unique opportunity to look back seven years later now. Hard to believe. Hard to believe at that time when we were so upside down and inside out with so much uncertainty. It was your kindness, one of the many friends, but a very special way that you, as our friend, contributed. So I want to really thank you for that. And maybe we could begin with uh, what you even remember back then when you first heard about Archer's accident. I was kind of racking my brain when I was thinking about this before the call, just in terms of like where I was and 
where our family was when we heard about it. And, you know, I look back and I believe it was in early August is when the accident happened, correct? If yes. I'm not mistaken, yes. August of 2015. August the 5th. Right. We were up in Cape Cod right before it happened, and we had just come home. And we had heard, actually, from my son, Clayton, who was good friends with Jeffers Inslee. And he had basically informed us of what had happened, and we immediately got on the phone with you know, our network, some of the old MLC network that we knew that we knew were very tight with you and Billy just to find out if they had heard anything about it. And we had gotten details from the Demuths and some of the other families from MLC just in terms of what had happened. So that's how we had first heard about the accident. You know, when you speak of MLC, that's the Maryland Lacrosse Club. And it really infuses me from my heart through like all the cells in my body right now, just to think about a group of people, one of a number of groups that, you know, any family might be involved with, but just those kinds of connections. In this case, a group of families whose boys were playing lacrosse together from the time when they were five, five yep. and six. Remember, we started just the little Absolutely. guys and then the little girls and all the way through until they were, you know, playing the big leagues and the big tournaments. We traveled together metaphorically, and we've truly traveled together to these different places with our kids playing lacrosse while we spent time on the sidelines. And there was a lot of relationship established. Uh, Believe me, it really was. It was almost like a family. And for us, Cardi and I had just moved to Baltimore in 2000, and we didn't really know many people here. And when we joined MLC, when I think it was Thomas and Archer were playing together during those early days and Mike Morrill was coaching, Billy was coaching, I was helping out. And it was through those relationships that our network really began in Baltimore. And it was the family with a lot of really nice families that were in that program. And we all got to know each other. And I gravitated to the Semp family because you have a very large family. I came from a large family up in Connecticut. I was the last of six kids and I saw the mayhem going on in the Semp house with the Suburbans and big family and the lacrosse equipment and and the forgotten sock and where's the cup. (laughs) Exactly. I was the last of the Mohicans in my house and it was mayhem in my house. And I said, I can relate to that family. I know what's going on there. So I I felt like we had a bond in some respects with your family, though, you, you know, many of your kids were older than ours, but we were tight with Archer and with Dutchie. So I really remember that. I still feel it. And I think those bonds, as I'm even thinking about your work and your travel, I remember the years when you were not working in Baltimore and having to commute and the, the many conversations that you and I had, both as sort of working in these environments with folks and lamenting how just hard that was and right. what it meant to your family and the years that Billy was up in Boston and I was exactly. You know, yeah. And I remember that conversation, Billy and I, you know, we had a long conversation about what it was like to live away from home and 
he said in a lot of respects, it made your relationship with him even stronger from the time of separation. It was difficult. And I, I feel like, you know, for me at that time, when I was up in New York for four years and commuting back in the weekends, I realized how strong my wife is. She essentially raised the family while I was gone and made me appreciate my family even more, my relationship with my wife. It was exactly what Billy and you had described. So I always remembered that. We just never know these silver linings to situations that are arduous on a yep. family, but what you really discover that is so important and the recognition even that can come around appreciation for just what it takes to make a family like work well or well enough, you know, amidst the mayhem. And I do remember those commonalities and just so many of those discussions. And I think it was even around the time shortly before Archer's accident, when you were coming back to roost in Baltimore, possibly from having been up in New York. Is that right? Yep. It was right before Archer's accident that I had come back to Baltimore and just left the firm that I'd been with for over 20 years and trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my life. At the time, it was in August and I was taking a few months off to basically reacquaint myself with my family and get my head on straight as to what the next chapter of my life would be professionally. And It's right when Archer's accident happened. So from a timing where I was, you know, maybe able to help, that was probably the best time for me to do it. I never realized or knew that. And that makes now so much sense because you gave so much of your physical time to our house and our home. I don't know if you remember, but the first time that I came back from the Shepherd Center, it was relatively early September, which felt like I'd been away for a million years because Dutch had already been in school for a couple weeks, like by himself. And I came home and our yard was so beautiful it was it was just beautiful it was mowed and everything was clipped and all my flowers because I love to garden so much were blooming and it was just so well cared for and it was like magic I didn't know who or what had happened or or what it was. As Jim and I talked, what emerged was how an army of well-intended friends and neighbors have the capacity to coordinate to help a family who was doing okay before a catastrophic injury or loss not sink as a result of the tragedy because the best of families can sink. But it is the village 
that can hold a family together through their crisis in a myriad of ways until they are on their feet again. What follows are some organic and strategic ways that might pique your interest for being a quarterback or a member of the team that helps a family, a family you know, or a family you don't know well but want to be a part of the coordinated effort. Every player is needed for the healing team. And if you are the family in need, it all begins with the connections and relationships you have cultivated over the years that you never imagined needing to call upon, but who do come forward to carry you, along with others who generously come forward to be involved. You are so loved. There are so many silver linings to a traumatic crisis and loss. We were part of a uh, team and I, you know, the way that I actually got involved was one of the many quarterbacks that you had to help coordinate, you know, the support that you needed, one of which was David DeMuth. He was the one who was really instrumental in delegating. And he had informed me that you needed help with replanting and yard work. And I'm like, all right, I will do whatever needs to be done, David. I don't want to bother Louise directly. She's got a lot on her plate. You just tell me what I need to do or where I need to do. glad I could help in a very small, small way. It was a big, huge, huge way. And the first time when I came back, I guess Moose had organized you all just to simply take care of our yard. And it was just such a beautiful sight. It was a very beautiful sight. Well, it's the least we can do. You know, I'm curious this gathering of yourself and others and with Moose, David DeMuth, at the helm of that, what was that like? You had some extra time on your hands, but what does that coordination effort look like? Because I imagine there would be a number of people who are friends of other people who go through a big crisis that lasts for a long time. And right. just what that gathering, how it comes about. Well, I mean, I will tell you that there were a couple quarterbacks that we went to. You mentioned Moose. Another one is Ned Inslee. He's also a good, good friend. And we used basically the network that he had with the other quarterbacks that were around you, helping in certain ways. You know, when somebody goes through crisis, I guess the immediate reaction is to you want to jump in and just help. But at the same time, you're thinking, okay, I don't want to overwhelm them because a family is going to have a network. And when they're in crisis, they're overwhelmed. And you don't want to be a further burden with all the people that are trying to help. So you try to find basically a point person within who's handling a specific need for the family. So what you try to do is identify the quarterback or the person who is running point on a specific need where you can help. And, you know, we thought about 
where can we help the sumps without being a burden? And, you know, there was so many different things that Cardi and I were thinking about. Could we help with food? No, they've got that covered. Could we help with yard work? Possibly that might work. Could we help with Dutch? Tucker and Dutch have known each other since preschool. And we didn't know what the situation was there. We, we live right around the corner and anything that we could do help there. They thought that they had that covered as well. But then I got the call from David and stay in contact with Ned as well. The network was there. And if anybody needed anything, they could just reach out to you saying, Hebert, you need to do this, this, and this. And that's basically how everything was coordinated through the network that we have. It's just takes my breath away, just the armies of people and how you all just rose to the cause and this concept of a point person from the perspective of the family who is so overwhelmed, the point person with a number of quarterbacks is so key as a model, I think, for how it is that friends can help families in crisis because there was a point person in a few different areas, literally feeding our family every day for over a year. You guys on the yard work, there was also a point person on the funds that we had needed for transportation and Moose had been part of that too for the flights. And then there was a point person for another gathering of raising monies and then a point person for Dutch. That wasn't as well, ironically, coordinated because I think that people thought I was the point person and I was thinking Paula was the point person, um, you know, and Paula was like, you know, 20 something years old and trying to do her own job and just got Dutch to school and he needed, you know, transportation and then for sports, he needed transportation to school and he needed school lunch and he needed mental health and he needed all kinds of things that there really wasn't a point person, but there was a village for Dutch. But this idea of, of having a point person in a particular defined area so that I think it's also equally not overwhelming for those who get involved. It's something they can do in their lane where, where it doesn't become a burden on other families as right. I think quite critical. And I will just share that for me, gave me... Uh, some peace of mind that not only it was happening and my family was being taken care of when I couldn't be there and my home was being taken care of when I couldn't be there, but that we weren't becoming a burden on just a few other people.
it's a lot to ask of friends and neighbors. Our neighbors were so incredible. And I think I learned how to receive in a way that I never, ever had before. Because there's no way to repay or give back. Yeah, I I don't think people look at it like that, though. And, you know, our initial reaction when the accident was, what can we do? Because we're never going to be able to take the burden, so to speak, off of you of what you're dealing with right then and there, but we can take the burdens around you off of you. And that was, you know, that's what I think the network around you was thinking. Let them concentrate on the problem at hand and support them through that, but let's handle everything else around them. I think that's right. And that's exactly what you all did. And I can't thank you enough. You would do the same. I absolutely would. You know, I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would want to talk about or to say, whether there were learnings for you in that time of crisis or any recommendations that you might make to others or to us to have done differently. Anything else, Jim? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say I grew up in a small town and I came from a large family and my family has dealt with a lot of families that were in crisis. And my recommendations for friends, family of people in crisis is just be cognizant of the fear and the grief and all that lays in front of them. But also, you know, be cognizant that you're one of many people who want to help. So be patient. Figure out who those point people are in different aspects that want to help. And coordinate your efforts to achieve the goal of basically helping with all those burdens around the main burden that they have. you want to jump in and help immediately, it's probably best to just be a little bit patient, let things kind of settle, and then coordinate. Well said. There doesn't have to be an urgency of everyone involved, but giving it a little time to settle because it actually is so chaotic and clearly for us but also I think for the friends wanting to do something. And then when it does settle a bit to know that whether it was a one-time casserole or a one-time ride for one of your children or a one-time walk of the dog or a one-time, you know, picking up something and delivering it or a one-time mowing of the grass, whatever it is that that one time cumulatively with many other people one time changes a life. It changes a family's experience. I 
have a question for you, if I could ask. Yeah. So just going through this crisis, how did you decide who some of those point people would be to help with different aspects of what you needed to be done outside of the main burden that you had? Did it just happen naturally? It was a combination of both. I really credit what people came to call the Archer blog, my family and friends updates, with so much of what happened because people were being apprised when I was writing Bedside and it was raw and Paula was putting it onto the Being Relational site that we had had set up for the book. And so it was easy for people to stay abreast of things. And in those writings, I would talk about or lament that I was concerned about something or I hope that my family is being taken care of in one way or another. And so people pretty quickly would text me. So much of that happened in the first, I'd say, two to three weeks per your point of kind of letting things settle a little bit. It wasn't like the next day. Because nobody knew what would be needed or what was really happening. So like Philippa Shields, a mom at McDonough, it was she who coordinated and did a schedule on an app for it. Back in 2015, when we didn't really have too many of those things, but it was kind of like the beginning of what we would have used for sports when we were all bringing snacks and drinks at halftime. And she used that kind of an app. And then somebody else rose to the fore in my neighborhood to keep an eye on our house because it hadn't even occurred to me. But they're like, Louise, everybody knows that no one's home. And now you're writing about this. So we're going to go and turn the lights on and off and and do a, I had a, a neighbor, Cam, who would walk past my house every night And kind of go around almost like a guardsman. And indeed, we did have one crazy incident. And he was on it with a a guy posing to be a gutter guy. So there were some organic things that just arose because people were alert and awake. Kind of thinking about us in in a way that was very kind. The others were when Ned came to me about the the first time was I needed to find twenty five thousand extra dollars for the first flight, and I I didn't have it on my credit card limit, and I had simply said I didn't have it on my credit card limit, and it was taking time because and I'm having to be on the phone for the bank to approve and those kinds of things, so. He kind of came forth, but I said, you know, can you help? And then he and a group of other friends and Moose was involved in that. So that's how that came about. And then there was a school nurse at the cathedral who was also a friend where Dutch went to school, Dutch, you know, being our youngest, who reached out to me and said, you know, she just wanted me to know that she was personally going to look after Dutch. And that then became my 
conduit for everything. And she picked Dutch up and brought him home and looked after him at school and in a way that was extraordinary. And then there were other touch points, you know, I had to call upon people to take care of my office. And then, you know, I had to talk to my staff and then we had to let go of people. And then, you know, who it was on bills. And we had other things going because we had tuitions to be paid. And I needed somebody to, to do some research for me on spinal cord injury. So I reached out to a couple people whom I knew that might be something for them because they were I knew they had some time and that they could be almost more cerebral about it. So there were just a, a number of many quarterbacks, as right. you would say. Yeah. Right. You mentioned the blog and we lived by that blog throughout that time. Very powerful. It helped in terms of coordinating the network, so to speak, that had formed to help you all. And I would say that, you know, not everybody has fortitude to do a blog like you do, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the person in crisis who's doing the blog. It could be a friend. I think that's so valuable. That's right. Or a family member other than the immediate family member or even a child. It, It could be another person. It is helpful, though, isn't it, to have Very. someone writing? Mm-hmm. It keeps everybody basically on sync as to what the needs of the family are and to help you know, the community, so to speak, know where they can help. And uh, that, was, that was key, I think, through that time. reminding me of something in the very early days of writing that was so unintended about why I was also committed to writing it. Well, I actually, I was really committed to writing it because I wanted Archer to know what had happened to him. I was so worried about the amount of narcotics that he was on and whether he would even ever know. And because I do have many years of experience with deep crisis and trauma. I knew that he could easily block that and that it would be, it would be an objective, although, you know, through my eyes, subjective, but it would be something for him if he ever chose to go back to it. And I feel that I really feel like I had a little spiritual whisper, like, because I would get so tired and would be like, write it down you know, like write it down. And there's no way I could have remembered. But in the early days with the text messaging, there were people who were texting me about things that were really very inaccurate about Archer's injury, about our family, about what was going to happen, or we were moving, you know, just stuff that comes through not through bad intentions, but just through community gossip, trying to fill in the blanks because, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, that's what the brain's trying to do. When something is unfamiliar, the brain is 
scanning for something that is familiar and reasonable to fill in the blank to make sense of something that is otherwise nonsensical. And so I think that's what was happening. So I knew that I would not only be writing about what was happening to Archer, but also what was happening around us to keep the record straight. So the coordination could go well, especially once I realized it was going to be a longer haul than we had originally been told. And then when they didn't think Archer would live and all the people whom we needed point persons, many as prayer warriors as well, Um, all over the place, you know, different schools where the children at that point were going, different colleges where the kids couple years ahead of Archer were attending different states, different churches, uh, different religious organizations, just a number of point people gathering their people to pray very intentionally for Archer was coming out of the writings. And I guess I never imagined that, but that would be something I would, as you pointed out, urge, encourage any family in crisis to have some kind of writing about what's going on so people can feel included and help. Yes. It's also a way of them helping to carry the burden that you're dealing just with life and can direct them into ways that they can actually help. I think that's right. And in ways that they can choose and, and say, I can do that, as opposed to, ooh, you know, gosh, I don't know, or I don't know if I'm going to have the time for that, or I'm not sure how to do that, but where they can say, that's where I can help, because it's so practical. And it wouldn't just be a small group of people uh, doing everything, it would be some major point persons with a lot of other people helping them. People are extraordinary. I I know it's oftentimes been credited to our American ethic. When I think about in law school um, and also as a Catholic by background, being so service oriented, you know, this kind of instinct that we might have as human beings, but then, you know, looking at how as a democracy, we are kind of wired whether it is or whether it isn't, I do think there is a human instinct and that as free people, we're able to act on that instinct. That's very beautiful to serve Absolutely. people. If I thought about what the impact of Archer's accident had on our family, you know, you really, you reevaluate what is important. And at the time I was going through a job change and I'm like, you know what, in the grand scheme of things, yes, jobs are important, but it's really nothing compared to what Louise is going through right now and, and Billy's going through. What is really important in life is family, friends, relationships, right? That is what you live for. That's what I live for. Just took me a long time to get there to understand that. 
if I had to pick something, somebody were to ask me, what did this crisis really mean to me? I think that it was just an awakening for me. Well, thank you for waking up with us <laughs> because it was an awakening for us as well. You just don't know what is in store for you and how good people are to help you through the darkest of times. Yeah, absolutely. And how grateful we can then be. And I think that's where, you know, the, the being awake really kind of comes in. There is still so much joy and possibility and beauty and people being of service is so beautiful that in the midst of great difficulties, there is always light, always light in the darkness. And I thank you for being such a shining light. What a difference thoughtfulness and kind acts can make. There is strength in numbers and support systems are vital to healing. I truly believe it is the care circles that we cultivate around us, those people who make you feel safe and who care for you, that's foundational for trauma healing. It's important to know you're not alone. It's important to know how loved you are. If you are feeling lost, you can email me at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com or reach out to me at asklouisevipsempt on facebook.com. We are in this process of trauma healing together, and the progress isn't always linear. It's hard work, but small shifts and kind acts matter. Thank you to people like Jim Hebert, who make the healing process manageable and even kind of beautiful. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 12, Going Home, Part 1. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about the Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide. 
by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face -face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com. Blink of an Eye podcast is sponsored by I See That, the integrative center for trauma healing, advocacy, and transformation. A nonprofit created as a national resource to help change the way we respond to spinal cord injury, to include trauma healing approaches for families and medical teams across the U.S. I See That provides a national team of SCI specialized doctors for expert opinions in the first hours of crisis, a multidisciplinary family support and navigation team for SCI families led by SCI families for the first 30 days of crisis, and a national resource library of trauma-informed responses for the first hours and days after injury, specialized for families, friends, and SCI medical staff. I See That also offers a registry of medically unexpected SCI recoveries. I See That will host the inaugural conference, The Science of Trauma, Hope for Trauma Healing, November 3rd, 2022. To donate and find out more, visit www.icthat.org. That's I, the letter C, T-H-A-T dot org.